Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Fred Provenza. He's a researcher in behavioral ecology who has carried out fascinating research on the nutritional wisdom of animals, on their ability to select their diets and learn. We wanted to explore with him the importance of shrubs and trees in the nutrition of grazing animals, but in reality, the conversation went well beyond that into why and how to increase diversity in the herd's diet. This, of course, relates to agroforestry, but also goes beyond as we explore in-depth elements of animal behavior. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Fred, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, we're so excited about this interview and, and having you with us today. And to kick things off, maybe you could give us a bit of an um, overview of your background and the path that led you to researching agriculture. Sure, happy to do that. I think from when I was a young child, I was absolutely fascinated with anything that was alive, insects, birds, fishes, mammals, and lived in a in a small town in central Colorado in the mountains in the in the Rocky Mountains and just lo- loved everything outdoors kinds of things like that. So that led naturally then to uh, when it came time to go to college to to uh, a program in wildlife biology. And I, I absolutely loved everything I was learning about plants, about animals, about ecology. But at the same time, I kind of by quote coincidence ended up working on a ranch. I had a friend who asked me if I wanted to earn some extra money during my senior year in high school. And I said, sure. He said, we can haul hay, bales of hay out at Henry DeLuca's ranch in the evenings and on the weekends. And I said, okay, I was working at a greenhouse during my years in in high school. I said, that sounds great. And I absolutely loved it, loved everything about being out there on the ranch. I didn't know anything about it, was had no ranch experience, but it was just the right thing for me. It was clear, I loved that. And that combination of what I was learning, hands-on working with animals, goats and sheep and cows and pigs and and chickens and everything and growing crops out on the ranch really complemented what I was learning in wildlife biology, even though that might seem like it wouldn't, it did perfectly the ecology and plants. And so, yeah, so that led me then, um, you know, when I finished my schooling at Colorado State University, and as I say, I loved that. I thought, though, I've had enough schooling for one lifetime, not not enough learning, but enough, <laughs> enough schooling. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do, though. I knew I wouldn't be in wildlife biology. Don't know how. I just knew that I wouldn't be in that. So I thought, well, I'll go back to the ranch. Henry needs somebody to run the place. He wants somebody to run it full time. So I thought, I'll go back there. Something will obvious, will occur to me somewhere along the line. So while I was out there running the place, somehow, I don't know why, I thought research might be interesting. I, I also was 
I realized how much I loved learning about things. And I was missing that actually, just that kind of stimulation you get from, from the classes. I, I, uh, I was really missing that. And I think that was in part got me thinking, well, if you want to go back to school, which you said you'd never do, uh, maybe research would be interesting. So I started applying to different places and uh, ended up going back to graduate school, actually at a place I didn't get into graduate school so easily. I didn't have the best grades in the world. I, <laughs> they weren't bad, but they weren't the, you know, so, um, but I ended up at a place uh, and I'll save the stories on that though. They're interesting. It makes you reflect back on how events you don't even pay attention to at the time end up being key factors in the composition of kind of a complete consistent plot of your life. When you look back, then you think, oh, wow, that was amazing. But anyway, I ended up at a place where the researchers were thinking about how can we use domestic animals to improve habitat for wildlife. And I thought that's perfect for me because there was always this controversy. Wildlife people didn't like domestic livestock so much because they saw them as degrading landscapes. They de and here in this country, in the early part of the last century, there was a lot of overgrazing that occurred that degraded the, rain, the landscapes. And so wildlife people saw livestock as absolutely negative influences. And yet here's this program that for many years for 50 years or so had been showing how we can use domestic animals to improve habitat through grazing for wildlife species. So I thought that's, that works really well for me. And I was fortunate to get, get in. You sometimes think that there's uh, that it's not chance like at all. As you go through life, uh, there's kind of a path for you. If you follow your heart and you get on that path, it's kind of like it was, always there in a way anyway so that's long-winded that's some background though how and then i got there to utah state university my wife and i thought well we'll go there for two years you can get your master's degree then we go somewhere else well i found i absolutely was loved research i just couldn't it was amazing and so ended up going on for a PhD. And then during that whole process, uh, I was working with goats and just watching what they were doing, like I'd done on the ranch and just amazed by, by their behaviors, doing things that, that you think, why are they, um, you know, we were using goats to manipulate this landscape dominated by a shrub. We're going to talk about shrubs and trees dominated by a shrub called blackbrush. And the idea was we'll have the goats browse that shrub during the winter, and that stimulates all this new growth on the shrubs. That would be better, better food for wildlife species like mule deer and bighorn sheep, as well as for cattle during the winter. So we're using them to, to improve this landscape. But come to find out, the goats didn't want to eat the new growth in the blackbrush, even though we know on shrubs and trees, new twigs are more nutritious. They're higher in energy and protein, in minerals and so forth. The goats didn't want to eat it. So these kind of things were, were and other things were happening. It just was like fascinating and to, to think about that and then to study it. And so that led to 
do 40, 35, 40 years of research. And now, now we're talking, I'm retired for 13 years and <laughs> it went quickly. It went quickly. And, uh, you know, you've, um, you've had a long career, you've written several books and many papers and, um, what were like the key themes, uh, or, or findings that you focused on throughout your academic career? I'd say there are three, three broad areas that, that we focused on. One were, was, and they all related in a sense to the nutritional wisdom of the body of, of creatures, that there's this wisdom that's in all creatures, including humans, that knows what your body needs. The cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, know what we need if we allow that to, to take place. So there's three facets to that. One is getting some help early in life from mother. And, and uh, so we did a lot of studies of how, what mother's eating and where she's going, how that influences food and habitat selection behaviors by her offspring. To me, that was so interesting uh, to look at that, how that starts even in the womb, where a fetus is already starting to learn about the foods mother's eating from the flavors of her foods uh, that get into the amniotic fluid after birth, then uh, flavors in mother's milk are cues to what she's eating. And then mother has a model, what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, what's a predator, what's not a predator. So that was one huge area that uh, was so amazing just uh, to, to see that learning that takes place. And then to follow that with work that we did with bison, looking at how um, many, many species, including livestock, if you let them to their own devices, they end up in families. They live in extended families, which is amazing too. To, uh, we were very much that way historically. Huh? Indigenous, uh, indigenous peoples lived in extended families and clans and tribes. Huh? So they are a model in that sense. So that was one area. Another area that was totally sh shocking to me are these um, you know, if I were to ask you why you like a particular food, you would tell me because it tastes good. If I like you, why you don't like one because it tastes bad to me. And that's certainly our experience. But what we learned was that cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, are changing our liking for the flavor of food as a function of their needs. So this whole area of what we call metabolically mediated feedback relationships, big bunch of words there, huh? but it's this idea that feedback is what's altering our liking for the flavor of food. That we did so much work and it's so familiar to me now that I don't re, uh, I, I forget, but I'm corresponding with a lady in China who read this book that I wrote, Nourishment, and she always had issues with, with diet and, uh, and eating and until she said the book really helped her so much. And she said there was a, I asked her, well, what, what, what about it? What really caught your attention? And she put a quote in there and it had to do with these feedbacks. And I was saying when, we did the first experiments of that. It absolutely stopped me in my tracks to think that we could feed something to an animal 
and then we infuse something directly into their guts, into their stomach, or into their bloodstream, and it totally changes their liking for the flavor of the food. It's like, wow, that's a... Because then it gets you thinking, well, palatability is more than a matter of taste. It involves these feedbacks, and these feedbacks are coming from cells and organ systems of the body, each with their own needs. You know, nowadays people are very much focused on the microbiome. And for good reason, the microbiome has an influence on, on what we want to eat. They're, they need to meet their needs, right? And so, but you have to then realize that same for the, the lungs, same for the heart, same for the liver, same for the brain, they each have needs. And it's a democracy in a sense. All these cells and organ systems are sending signals to our palate that are changing our liking for the flavor of food. That's not very scientifically said. And there's a huge amount of research that looks at hormones, neurotransmitters, peptides. All these are the signals that cells and organs uh, give to, to, to change our liking as a, as a function of, of their need. I'm thinking now of a book, um, A Change of Heart, it's called by Claire Sylvia. And she's talking in there about what happened after she got heart and lung transplant. And it's really an amazing story about everything that happened to her. Here's this 40-year-old woman that gets the heart and lungs as she came to find out of this young man, this young guy in his 20s. And you think, like the medical people thought at the time, the heart is just a pump. The lungs are just machines for getting oxygen, right? No, they're not. You bring all this all this quote baggage of of this young male into your body and it was amazing the things that she experienced you know you don't realize that that there there <laughs> makes you think what is this person i call me uh, but as relates to our topic um what she found was that her food preferences changed they broadened out she still kept her quote, her own preferences, but she started to like all these things that Tim, her donor, liked that she never liked before, you know. So anyway, so that was a second huge area, this whole metabolically mediated feedbacks and how they alter liking as a function of need. Um, the third part is was simply to look at the availability of alternative foods and to realize the, the fundamental importance of biodiversity. Um, you know, as a young student, in uh, undergraduate student, ecology was a fairly young discipline in those days. But even then, they were talking about the importance of biodiversity. And it leads us to your topic, too, of, or a topic we want to talk about, the importance of shrubs and trees and systems. Well, that diversity is, is fundamentally important. You know, you can have a great mother. You can have all these metabolic feedbacks, but if you don't have any decent alternatives, the body isn't going to be able to meet its needs. So this whole notion of biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity and plant diversity and uh, became a third part of, of this work. And, and I'm still actually involved, not, not hands-on now. I do it as a cheerleader through, through other young people, but studying the linkages of how plant diversity influences the health of soils, influences the health of plants themselves, 
influences the health of livestock by allowing them not only to meet their needs for nutrients, but also to self-medicate when they need that. And then how when animals are uh, have the ability to select a, from a, a nice variety of foods, the, the phytochemical and biochemical and health-promoting characteristics of their meat and milk and cheese is greatly enhanced for humans. So that's those are the three areas I, I would say that that uh, that was wonderful to explore during the during the time here on this planet, <laughs> doing research and and now it's still wonderful to to be a cheerleader and supporter for young people who are launching into their careers and. and you know, over the years, you make contacts with lots of people that you can facilitate them getting grants, getting uh, getting research going, and so forth. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and it's uh, you know such vast topics. But um, I think maybe uh, we you know we discussed this earlier, and you mentioned you had done some work with some farmers to try and bring these insights into some practice and, and something practical and useful for farmers. Maybe you could, you know, give us a few examples of this so our listeners really uh, make the bridge and grasp how everything you talked about before really translates into practice. Well, let's start. One example uh, that comes to my mind right now of when we were working with, with farmers and ranchers and, and doing research as a part of that, you know, in the, inter, in the Intermountain West, uh, this region in the Western United States, uh, there, there, back in the day, people planted on, on the rangelands there, planted a, a grass species called crested wheatgrass. It's native to Eurasia. And it, the reason they did that, it provided great forage during the springtime for livestock, basically, and for wildlife as well. It greens up early in the spring. It produces lots of forage highly, highly nutritious. And so many of the rangelands were simply seeded to monocultures of crested wheatgrass. Well, um, it, so it, it did provide forage, but in terms of diversity of forage and diversity of forage seasonally, it wasn't the best. So one of the projects we were involved with was thinking about, can we interseed crested wheatgrass with different species of shrubs? takes us to the woody plants, shrubs and trees. <clears throat> and so we were involved in, in this study and working with livestock producers that knew the importance. So why shrubs? So during the winter time, crested wheatgrass matures and it has <clears throat> a lot of standing dead material. That's a great source of energy, but it's not a great source of protein. And we knew that if we were to interseed shrubs into those crested wheatgrass stands, we could provide a source of, of protein for, for wild and domestic animals. In addition, when it snows, we, we used to get lots of, of good snows in those areas. The shrubs are available above, above the snow line. And so we did, we did work with, with people uh, along those lines and just showing the importance of shrubs and, and, Lots of work, lots of practical work was done simply to to realize the importance of plant diversity, and then to to interseed stands of crested wheatgrass with with different shrub species. It was very interesting. Some of the work that we did, where 
in the in the early studies we had I think like eight different species of shrubs that that we'd interceded palatable good nutritious species they varied in their their chemistries um, they all were great sources of protein and minerals and so forth but you know the secondary chemistries of those those varied some might be high in terpenes plants like sagebrush for instance over over here and you you'll have sagebrushes in your part of the world too Others might be, be high in tannins like mountain mahogany and so forth. I'm giving specific ones, but the idea is different shrubs have different chemistries. And those chemistries are, are, are important for animals. Well, what was amazing to us was to watch the, we were working with sheep in one set of studies and we turned them out in the morning and they had patterns that they would eat. For breakfast, they wanted sagebrush. You know, and, and uh, a sagebrush, a lot of people here in our part of the country think of as not such a, a great forage. Um, and that they, over the years, we've tried to get rid of sagebrush. Well, it was our grazing management practices that led landscapes to be dominated by sagebrush. Sagebrush, the chemistry of the, the terpene concentrations in sagebrush vary throughout the year as you go into the spring and summer and fall, very high concentrations of terpenes in sagebrush to the, to the point where animals don't want to eat it much. And so a lot of times we would have lots of animals on landscapes during the spring and early summer, and they would overgraze the grasses and forbs, which led to domination by sagebrush across the landscape. So now people are in a battle with sagebrush, we want to get rid of it. But during the late fall and winter, terpene concentrations drop in sagebrush becomes really wonderful forage. So here are these sheep. We turn them out first thing in the morning. Eight different shrubs that they could select from. They want sagebrush. So they go and they eat sagebrush first thing in the morning. It was amazing. And then during the day, they would forage on different shrubs. And in the evening, they always wanted to, to eat this, this shrub called four-wing saltbrush. And so all that was, was showing us that they, the animals very much appreciated the shrubs, but they, they appreciated them in different ways at different times of the day. It was a whole eye-opener to me back, back 45 years ago to watch, just watch the animals do that. And then they would also dig through the snow to eat some of the, the crested wheatgrass that was there. And so it was practical, you know, those became very practical kinds of things that were linking the importance of biodiversity, uh, plant diversity, diversity of different chemistry of species, these feedbacks, these metabolically mediated feedbacks. And then, you know, as part of a, a broader system, mother and mother te teaching her offspring and so forth. So, um, yeah, and we, we did many, 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 many studies with, with, with shrubs and the value of shrubs uh, as, as forages for animals, uh, uh, in this case, during the wintertime, no question about it, but, but year-round, shrubs are, are valuable. And then one can think, too, not only for animals above ground, but also that diversity of plants is, is incredibly important for the health of, of life below ground, huh? That, that, that diversity is, is enabling diversity of different species and the health of those species below ground, just like it's happening above ground as well. 
Are there any specific um, elements in, in shrubs or trees that uh, make them particularly interesting, or is it just that they contribute to biodiversity and to the wide like range of, of possible biochemicals that uh, an animal can ingest? You know, it's a really good question that you ask related to that. And I think historically what what we all would have said from, from work that, that uh, classical nutrition work that we were all involved in is that shrubs provide a great source of protein to to animals during during the uh, during the fall and winter time in our particular case here you know the microorganisms in the rumen need sources of not only energy which dormant grasses and forbs would provide but they also need a source of protein to meet their needs in order to keep their populations healthy and that's whether it's in the soil, you know, same thing in the soil as it is in, in the guts of the animals. And so that would have been the classical answer is that uh, the shrubs provide a great source of protein to, to um, provide that nutrient for, for rumen microorganisms. And then when you have a grass shrub range, you have a wonderful mix of energy and protein uh, complementarity there. So historically, and certainly today, that, that's every bit as true as it was back in the day. But I think now, uh, as we've gone on more and more and more to realize the tremendous complexity of plant species when it comes to their chemistries, that it's not only these primary compounds like energy and protein and minerals and so forth, but this diverse array of secondary compounds that come under these broad classes like phenolics and terpenes and alkaloids. And then to appreciate that when an animal's eating a meal, it's introducing tens of thousands of these compounds into its body. So it becomes incredibly complex to the point where, you know, you can study parts of it, facets of it, and we did certainly, but then I think you reach a point and this is because I'm maybe getting old now and don't have the energy to study. But you also reach a point where you realize there's no way you're going to study uh, 100,000 compounds that an animal ate in an hour-long meal. You know, it's just it, you can't study that in the ways that we used to study. But you come to appreciate that the body knows, the cells and organ systems of the body know how to work with all those compounds and that it's when you have it enable animals to have a diverse array of different species that then animals can pick and choose from different ones and then that exposes at a cellular level um, you know if you think of cells as like a fish in a stream the cells are foraging on what's in the capillaries and these compounds if there's a diverse array of them in the capillaries then each cell can pick and choose and i, I think that's very real that's not just just by analogy that that's real and so who knows what some cell in your liver needs you know but if that cell has access to that then it promotes its health you prevent cancer in humans and so forth we know all these these compounds um have have anti-cancer kind of of influence and so, and so you know, we did lots of studies of food selection. Just, it may sound funny, but how interesting it was to follow animals around and see what they're eating during the day. And if you follow any one animal, you find maybe three to five plants are the bulk of the diet, 
but it'll eat another 50, 75 plants during the day, a bite here, a bite there. We never used to think, at least me, and I think most of my friends too, we never gave too much value to that 50 to 75 other plants that were nibbled on here and there throughout the day because we figured the three to five are what are making up the bulk of the diet, which is contributing to the productivity of the animal. But now I don't think that at all. I think it's all of those plants are mattering in terms of the health of the animal uh, above ground. And then, then one comes to realize as well that every one of those animals is unique. It's, it's, it's different, one from the next. We know for, for we human beings, we can be ident identified by our fingerprint. A bloodhound can track us by, by our odors. If we look inside how our bodies are built, the, the form and how they function, every one of us is absolutely unique. And so what we need is, is different. And uh, that's the same for, for those animals as we showed in study after study after study. And so it becomes amazingly complex to, to try to make a quote recommendation like we often do for people of, of what people should be, be eating uh, when you come to appreciate that every individual is different, then you come to realize that's another reason why diversity diversity enables individuality, right? That that becomes a key key part of that. And so, back again to one of the things that that I know we want to explore: why why have shrubs and trees in a system? You know, they they enhance diversity for creatures below ground, above ground, and not only the livestock but all the all the the different wildlife species that are on the on the planet yeah i think that's uh, fascinating and, and also like you've you've explored these themes uh, in much more detail in another another talk so i encourage our listeners to uh, also go and click on the links i'll include underneath to to kind of get a, a further understanding of these of these um insights but you know i thought today we could take the conversation and try and, and take it from where it usually ends, which is, okay, well, diversity is amazing and it can have this huge potential for animal health and even for productivity. But, you know, I'm a farmer and I hear and I'm listening to you. And uh, what do I do with this information? And so one, one first one question that comes to mind is um, how do you promote that diversity through your practices? And how do you make sure kind of that the, the right plants will show up or do you just kind of have a a hands-off approach and just promote general diversity and, and, and trust your animals to go and, and discover um, those useful plants by themselves? Like what would be your advice to, to someone that wants to, to follow um, the principles you've just exposed? Yes, oh, excellent, excellent question. Several things come to mind and, and we can go back and forth on this to, to try to get at what you're thinking. You know, one related to diversity, how do you encourage diversity? You know, we were always doing that through grazing management, through thinking about time and timing of grazing. You know, when do we graze different pastures, for instance? And what is it that we want to encourage? And, um, you know, we, we realized, for instance, in some of the work that we were doing to improve habitat for wildlife, that if we graze during the spring of the year, we could encourage the growth and productivity of shrub species, shrubs and tree species in that environment by grazing grasses and forbs during the spring 
puts little pressure on them. We didn't want to get rid of them, but we would put a little pressure on them. We could get more growth on shrub species by time and timing of grazing. Um, if we wanted to decrease the abundance of shrubs a bit, we could graze during the fall and winter. So, you know, I raised that as, as a general thought about how the way that we graze and thinking about when we graze and how we graze can influence the biodiversity of the landscape. So that's one thing that, uh, that, uh, that we did a lot of work on back in the day of how, how our grazing management will influence the diversity of landscapes. Um, in terms of one of the, another thing that came to mind as you were, were talking uh, had to do with exposing animals to a variety of different foods and how do you get animals to appreciate a variety of different foods. And I think of, uh, in that sense, of the work that, that we did with uh, Michel Miret in France over the years and the shepherding practices. And not that everyone needs to be a shepherd, but some of the, uh, the, the ideas that, that they developed and and the practices, not just not only the ideas, but the practices of moving animals throughout the day and moving them to different, you know, in their case, to, to different habitat types across the landscapes and, and creating in a way appetizer courses, main, um, mea, main part of the meal, booster stages, desserts, all these things that's, you know, only in France maybe. Would. But again not not saying everyone should be should be uh be a shepherd but but what they're able to do through their moving animals and exposing animals to different plant species at different different parts of the meal is a way to to quote educate animals to expose animals to different different plants and different species and to encourage them to use those species um they it, it's it's tremendous, um, tremendous what they do. And then to realize too, that they're constantly learning from the animals. So it's a two way street, right? They, 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 through learning from the animals can then train the animals, but also, um, by learning from the, yeah, it's a two way street. It's a two way street for, for sure. You know, it makes me think about something here. I'm going to digress us into this that we got involved in years ago. So we were doing work um, training animals to eat certain plants, but also training them to avoid particular plant species. And that training to avoid is based on feedback and the idea that um, if an animal eats a food and it gets sick immediately after the meal, it's going to not want to eat that food anymore, especially if it's never seen the food before. It's the first time they try a food. Think from your own standpoint. You try a food you've never eaten before, you eat it, and you get sick after that. Nausea, you get nauseated. And we know the animals can experience this nausea. And so we, we did a lot of work training animals in that way, where we would give them a small dose of this compound lithium chloride, used to be used as a table salt, substitute for table salt in humans. And we just give them a little bit of a high dose. You know, we weren't trying to, to harm them, but we were, we were trying to learn about these feedbacks. But anyway, we learned that, boy, they, they learn quickly to avoid eating a particular food. So the... 
a lot of people took that, especially in vineyards and the, where they wanted animals to eat, eat the understory, but leave the trees alone, leave the shrubs, leave the grapes alone. Um, so that they would train their animals with, with this lithium chloride. Well, we were, we got asked by a group in the Northwest in Washington state, they were using sheep to graze in these forest plantations. The idea was to have them uh, graze the grasses and forbs, but not graze the trees. And, uh, and they, they had flocks of like a thousand sheep, thousand, two thousand sheep that they had trained. It was a lot of work, but they trained them not to eat, not to eat the shrubs and to eat the, eat the trees. Um, and it worked, it worked perfectly. In fact, I'm getting ahead of myself that when they first started that they hadn't trained the animals at all. And the first year they did it, they went in the, the ewes and the lambs ate the grasses and forbs. They didn't touch all these, these conifer trees, these young conifer trees that they were trying to get established. Um, so the first year was perfect. The next year they did that. Um, when they started, the trees started to put out some new, new growth, some new growth. The lambs got interested in that, and the lambs started to eat that new growth. And as the as the season went on, the lambs actually trained their mothers, trained the mothers to eat. So, so it had gone. The young animals exploring the environment had trained trained the ewes. The third year, when they came back, now the ewes have this behavior. They learned from the lambs. They come in. They start to eat, they train their lambs. So I'm trying to say that, so, you know, uh, the learning can occur in all different ways. And the young animals uh, are often a source of new information into, into the group. And then we can think of the shepherds as also benefiting from learning and, and this learning going in these different directions. What, going back to the, the forest plantation story, what happened there then was that they learned of the work that we were doing on training animals to avoid eating plants. And when the ewes started to eat these trees, then they called us and said, you know, is it possible for us to train these ewes with this lithium chloride not to eat the trees? And that, that's when we got, got involved. And that, that's a whole other story. But, but it, it, uh, it ties in with what, what we had wanted to talk about related to, to trees and grazing trees and so forth. I'll just interrupt for a second because while we're on the theme, I think it would be interesting. Is is this use of lithium chloride something that's uh, feasible for farmers listening to us and thinking of maybe putting in trees and their uh, putting in animals into their orchards, wanting to avoid uh, their animals eating certain plants? Is that something like feasible? Uh, is that the way you'd recommend to do it then? You know, there's a lot of nuance to be said to that. Back in the early days when we were first doing doing the studies. We, we were so excited about that because like, wow, we can, and when you see this demonstrated, when you actually do that, do something like that, one day they eat this plant, you simply take a capsule in a balling gun, put it down, which is easy to do. And the next day you expose them and they don't want to eat the plant. It gets your attention. You're like amazed you know, that this can happen. And then, so we worked out protocols over three to five days, training protocols. And it was done for poisonous plants to help cattle and sheep, uh, mainly is what we were, horses, horses as well. 
so so it it can work it can definitely work but there's a lot of a lot of like everything in life no silver bullets huh? no silver bullets so um we we and some of our colleagues showed that that you can do this and it'll last up to three years as long as we ran those studies the animals would still avoid but to do that, there are several there are several things that are really important. It works best if the if the food is unfamiliar to the animal. You know, if they've been eating that food for for months and years, it's much harder to train them to avoid eating it. It's like with us. If the food's always been good, one time we get sick, it's like, well, that's a one-off thing. I'm going to try it again and so forth. So there gets a lot of things like that 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 are involved in in the training part of this. Um, Having a variety of alternatives available to the animal also becomes very important. If if you for if there's not much else available, odds are the aversion's going to break down because if it's eat or starve, then they'll try it. And what's amazing to me is how clever animals are at being in touch with their body and sampling things and and those feedbacks of constantly constantly being in tune with that. Um, you know, if, if you train an animal to avoid something and for whatever combination of reasons, it starts, it samples that food again. And it might be that a neighbor, one of their buddies sample it, you know, that's, oh boy, I better try that too. We, we did studies like that too. If you had trained and untrained animals and unfortunately it's the, it's the animals that are eating the food that draw the, draw the animals that have been trained, not the other way around. And so, but if they sample it, you know, two bites today's, 10 bites tomorrow's, 50 bites the next day, and they're on it again. And so it's, um, that there's, there's a lot to it. It's something that certainly can be done if a person wants to enter into that. I, I coached and worked with many, many people and many people remotely too, in, including in Spain and France and California, the people who got most interested in this were people who had vineyards that because they wanted to be able to allow animals to graze out in those vineyards. You have a natural source of manure then that's get, that can fertilize the, the vineyards and so forth. And you don't want them to eat the, eat the, the vines though. And so I got involved a lot in, and received lots of nice bottles of wine from people actually, because I said I didn't want any money to, you know, to, to be, to be, to be talking with people and so forth. But yes, yeah, so it can be done. And you know, this whole business of bark chewing, bark chewing in animals and girdling of trees, that, that can be a big issue, right? And obviously can kill, kill the trees. One can think, you know, well, why on earth do they eat the bark? Huh? Why, why, do they, why, why are they so destructive, right? Why do they want to be so destructive? Well, you know, there, there are compounds in bark that really can, can have health benefits to animals. And I think tannins especially, bark is loaded with tannins. And tannins can, can uh, have a lot of benefits to animals. Um, not only from a medicinal standpoint, but they also, tannins can bind to protein, proteins in food. And you think, well, why would that be good? Well, it can help. It gets a little bit technical, but it can get the, by binding to protein in the, in the rumen, it protects that protein, that plant protein from being broken down by microbes in the rumen. 
But when it gets to the lower GI tract, the tannin protein complexes dissociate, so that protein gets available at the lower GI tract. It's what ruminants nutritionists call bypass protein, and it has really good health benefits. So that's a little bit technical maybe, but, but tannins can, can do those sorts of things. Tannins can also help animals, tannins in plants can also help animals to eat other kinds of foods that they not, might not be able to eat. When I was in Hawaii several years ago, we were talking with, with working with, with big producers there, and we were looking at, at plants that goats and sheep were able to eat that cattle couldn't eat. And we were thinking, well, why is that the case? And part can be just simply how goats and sheep are built and how they function. They're different from cows, right? But another thing that we were talking about is the tremendous amount of girdling, of barking that goats and sheep do. And that can enable them to eat plants that cattle can't eat simply by getting that tannin in their diet. So, so the barking has a very important function. And one can see too, for instance, here where we are during the winter, a lot of the small, small mammals will, will bark. They'll bar they eat the bark. They eat a lot of the bark. It's for, it's for those kind of reasons. So that might be another opportunity to, to offer animals a little bit of bark and then follow that with a, with a capsule of lithium chloride and train them not to eat bark. Yeah, just kind of summing up everything that you've been talking about because it's really interesting. It also means that, yes, you can train them uh, by providing a negative feedback, but also then you should be probably providing an alternative uh, source of tannins, for example, because they'll be searching to like balance their diet. So it's a kind of two-way thing, work on the negative, but also provide that alternative uh, one way or the other to prevent the, the draw towards it. Absolutely. The perfect kind of summary of that. And I love the way you're thinking about that because it's like, that completes the story, right? That's the that's the whole. They want this for a particular reason, right? There's there's you said it so nicely. I'll just reinforce what you said. You know, they 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 want this for a particular reason. It's not just because they want to destroy your your forest plantation or your trees, right? So then, trying to think about what is it that they're getting out of that? Is there a way that we could provide that provide that to them? And uh, you know that's where I think I think of the uh, I think of the shrubs that we were involved with, and many many of the shrub species, woody species, are high in tannins. And so if if there were a person could, in our case, by providing those shrubs, that provides a source of 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 tannins in the diet, and so they they don't need to bark the trees, which which that takes time and energy to do that, right? That's not easy an easy thing to bark. They have to really want that to do it. So, so it's a good, good source. I'm thinking too, and I'm jumping around on you a little bit here, but I had a good friend. I have a good friend that I used to work with a ruminant nutritionist. And when he retired, he moved to uh, the state of Missouri and in Missouri, they have a, a grass there that grows in monoculture. It's called endophyte infected tall fescue. It's, <clears throat> It's by all rights a, a toxic plant, but but it so has come to dominate landscapes that people have tried to learn how to live with that plant. <clears throat> it can take over and end up in monoculture. It's very high in alkaloids, 
And he, Randy was involved with us in some of the research like I'm talking about. And what he was observing his cattle do there, because there were trees available and tannin containing forage, he said, I noticed that those animals will use that as an appetizer. They'll eat the, those tree species. And he said, I'm virtually certain they're getting tannin out of those trees. And that's enabling them, as we were showing in our studies, to utilize this plant that's high in alkaloids, acendified infected tall fescue. And that takes us into a little of the particulars, but the tannins have a very high affinity for binding to a lot of compounds. Uh, I stated that earlier when I said tannins bind to proteins and they can create a bypass protein effect for animals. Well, the same thing happens with tannins and their relationship with terpenes and plants like sagebrush, they'll bind to that. So an appetizer of a food high in tannin enables animals to eat more of a, of a food high in terpene, the same with alkaloids. So in our particular environment, and it's why it, it does get important to try to know your species and know what kind of compounds that they contain. Not, not that it, it can happen naturally if a person first learns the different species of plants and then you start to learn, well, this one, for instance, I would be thinking about now bitter brush and sagebrush. Bitter brush is high in tannins, sagebrush is high in terpenes. An appetizer of bitterbrush helps animals to utilize sagebrush. And there are landscapes where I used to work <clears throat> where animals um, had access to both bitterbrush and sagebrush. And you could see that they reduced the abundance of sagebrush. And I'm sure it was because they had the bitterbrush as an appetizer to help them eat sagebrush. And then there, was, there were areas where this is wildlife species I'm thinking about now, mule deer, where the mule deer couldn't go. And there was a much, much more um, a mix, uh, an even mix of sagebrush and bitterbrush where the deer couldn't go, where the deer could go, they had re reduced the abundance of sagebrush. And the bitterbrush, is that making sense? The bitterbrush is helping them to do that. The appetizer of bitterbrush is helping them to use the sagebrush. But, but just a question here, okay, let's take my example. Um, I'll be in a farm, I'm thinking of, of planting some trees, for example. Willow is high in tannins, so I'd be smart to make sure I include some willow and give access to my animals so that, you know, they can use those tannins and, and hopefully that will enable them to explore new diets by, by combining uh, with other molecules. W would that be an approach you'd recommend? Absolutely the case. You're, you're right on thinking, you know, and... We see here in in uh, every place every place that I've worked here uh, the value of willows and how much animals like willows and it's for for all these reasons that we're talking about yeah so absolutely a perfect example of that you know and the value of of willows back in the day we were did a lot of work with natural products chemists and we were looking at at different species of shrubs and. Uh, it's clear that tannins aren't tannins aren't tannins, right? It, it, and this isn't to confuse or make it more complicated, but it's simply to state a fact. The tannins in bitterbrush are different from the tannins in blackbrush are different from the tannins in mountain mahogany. The structures are all different. So plants, plants don't wanna, but having said that, tannins do play general kinds of roles like we're talking about. And so I 
I wouldn't get so fussed on 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 knowing you know all the particulars of of the tannin structures and that sort of thing, but simply knowing that certain species have certain kinds of compounds. Willows have tannins. They, they also have salicylic acid, which is basic ingredient in aspirin, right? So if the animals have a headache, maybe they can go down. I'm teasing you a little bit. but Would you say that naturally in ecosystems, you tend to find uh, enough diversity that you have all these important classes represented? So what I mean by that is that if I'm a farmer, is it enough to just work with what's already there and maybe allow certain things to develop? Or do you need to be that bit more technical to really understand what's already there, what functions they play, and maybe identify a gap uh, or a lack of, of a certain plants or important functions in the nutrition? Another really important point that you're raising. <clears throat> When you started to, to ask the question, what came into my mind were many of the, of the native systems that we worked in. And there, there was really nice diversity in those those systems. And so in those cases, it, it was work, as you said, working, just working with what, what was there and, uh, and not, not necessarily needing to think about introducing anything. When <clears throat> the thing that we would introduce was simply management appropriate grazing management was what we were thinking about a lot and how to, you know, we, we like this diversity, we want to keep this diversity. And so how do we manage in ways that, that keep that if we need to encourage certain species, how through the time that we graze the animals that we put out there, um, you know, we used to see so much, I, I'm, <clears throat> I'll digress here a little bit and think, I'm thinking of some studies that, that were done in the southern part of Utah on diverse kind of natural landscapes. And the question they wanted to ask is the, the influence of sheep versus cattle versus cattle and sheep together on these landscapes. And so they, were, they had areas that they grazed only with sheep um, during the growing season, spring, summer, and, and into the fall. Other areas they grazed only with cattle and then with cattle and sheep together. And you can change the diversity of plant species by the animal species that you put on those landscapes. The sheep really like to, to um, utilize the, the, the uh, forb species there and, and some of the shrubs. And so they, they would, would really encourage uh, movement toward domination by some of the grass species, whereas the cattle very much preferred the grass species at that time of the year. And so you would get a movement towards forbs and shrubs. The combination of cattle and sheep, you'd maintain more of a balance. So that's, that's you know, through the species of animals and then the time that you graze, what, what struck me after 40, 50 years of working in that is how much we can influence the relative abundance of different species if we think about time and timing and animal species that we put on those. And I'm saying that in a positive sense. It's that, you know, we, we can really have an influence on, on what's, what's out there in those landscapes. So in that sense, it becomes developing a relationship with the landscapes. We know in our personal life that the amount of interest that we have and energy that we put into our relationships with one another 
it influences the the quality of the relationship. It's the same with the landscape too, you know. And I mean, that's not for everyone. I, I think of the people I worked with over time, and the people that that did the best were the people that just naturally loved loved the relationship with the landscape, right? They 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 were just fascinated. They loved the animals. They loved the plants. They loved thinking about that. They loved being involved with it. And they were able to do things that a person that's maybe not so interested couldn't do. And it was it was that they were these nurturing relationship with the, with the landscape. Um, it matters a lot. It's it's like the kind of the the loving energy we put into something. And and it's not to say that's good or bad. We're all different, right? In terms of what 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 is interesting to us, but. If it's something that fascinates you, it's like the sky's the limit on what what can be done. Uh, that's the first thing I think is is work with what try to work with the landscapes that you have rather than try to bring things in. But then, you know, a person can always uh, the the example I gave of the the lady in Australia. You know, they had removed all the trees from those landscapes. So if you want trees back, you're going to have to put trees. In and so that's what they did. Fifty thousand trees over those years, they'd they'd planted on those landscapes and totally totally transformed them back much more to how they would have been when they there were lots of eucalyptus trees growing on those landscapes. There's uh, several other questions that you know. I'm gonna have to take a few steps back because we went quite far into this uh, you know fascinating topic. But, you know, I, I asked you a bit earlier on, on what could a, a farmer do, um, what are his tools uh, to affect the amount of diversity. One thing that comes to mind for me is also the amount of fertilization you're going to put on uh, and, and the fertility of soils. Because, for example, the region where I am has very diverse uh, prairie ecosystems. And it's essentially because the soils aren't that rich. And there's this relationship between you know, very fertile lands will tend to have maybe less diversity than uh, more poor, diverse soils. Uh, am I correct in making that link? Yes, it's a very good point that you raise. And certainly the case that resource availability in the environment, sunlight, nutrients, water, have a huge influence on, on diversity and what plant species are there. And so it, it, it becomes a balancing act, as you say, huh, of of thinking about that and thinking about, um, you know, certainly when when we introduce livestock into into an area into a system, they're going to alter fertility of those landscapes by their urine and feces, right? And and as they they graze, they're they're having an influence on those systems. And so, you know, and I I want to let me make a point here too, I. I am maybe too enthusiastic in a way about diversity too. I think I see lots of value and I I love to see that. But, you know, I have a friend, Pablo Gregorini, who's originally from Argentina. He lives, he and his family live in New Zealand now, and he's doing lots of work along the lines that we've been talking about. And they're showing that as you move from from even one or two species to say a handful, four to six species, depending what those species are, can have tremendous influence in terms of the health of the animals and the system. So, so 
I just add that as a caveat that, you know, a person doesn't have to, to have maybe 100, 200 species or like one of my friends here on the, the native range where they graze, he tells me there's 400 species. You know, maybe he's thinking even four to six species. And if it's highly productive, can, can be highly, highly nutritious and valuable for, for animal species as well. So that's good maybe to make that point too, that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have to be hundreds of species to, to be diverse and to be functionally and meaningfully diverse as well. But, you know, you can also see the other way is that um, I'm farming on quite poor sandy soil, which uh, of course is an, an advantage, but I think we produce exceptional hay out of that soil. And I think there's something about uh, plants being stressed and, and pushing in a harsh, high altitude uh, environment. And it's quite interesting because um, you have like exceptional quality hay coming out of poor soils, which can be a bit counterintuitive because you would assume that, you know, the best, richest soil would produce the best hay. And I'm, I'm taking this, I'm, I'm, I'm just sharing the experience of the farmers I've been working with. You know, this isn't anything published or whatever, but I've been working on five, six farms and they've all told me the same thing. Is like cows will eat much more of this hay that we produce here. This thin mountain hay is much more, um, I don't know how you say it in English, but in French it's appétant, means uh, tasty, uh, for the animals than, for example, the hay from the plains, which is much more abundant. And uh, I think there's something interesting, and, and I kind of link it back to what you're also talking to about, you know, secondary compounds and, and the, the health of like uh, very diverse um plant communities. You raise a, raise a hugely interesting and important topic when you're saying that. And you mentioned that, that, you know, you don't have any research to back that. But what comes to mind is a, my mind is a huge amount of research that absolutely consistent with everything that you're saying. Uh, and, and what, what it illustrates and this will depend on the compounds that, that we're dealing with, but let me generalize, and tannins would fit into this, that as you, as fertility, as resource availability, let's say, declines, you can concentrate compounds, you can concentrate both primary and secondary compounds, they become more concentrated in plants, you don't have the dilution that you get due to growth when you increase fertility or resource availability, and so you know, even though it may not be you're on these these poor quality soils and you, you're maybe not getting the production, you can have a, a very much a concentration of both the primary and the secondary compounds and make very good quality kinds of, of, of food, hay for animals under those conditions. So there, it's a huge point that you raise and a very good point. And I often think of that relative to fruits and vegetables that we grow and that, um, you know, if you provide too much nutrients, you can get, you can accent growth at the expense of phytochemical richness. It's, it's a kind of a balancing act between how much is, how much uh, fertility and the plants are responding. So hugely interesting and, and important area. We used to think of that a lot with plants I'm thinking of a, of a plant called Cerisia lespedisa. It's a, it's a forb that's very high in tannins. 
And depending on where it's growing, it's either highly palatable or highly unpalatable. Same plant species, absolutely. It's simply a function of the environment. If it's growing in a really resource-rich environment, in this case, um, lot, a decent amount of water and nutrients, it becomes more palatable to cattle in this case because it... <clears throat> because you do dilute the tannins a bit. If it makes a, if you get too much tannin, the animals can't, can't utilize it. In the case of Ceresia, the tannins it has and so forth. So if it's growing on these harsh sites, cattle don't want to eat it much because the tannins are too concentrated in it if you go the other direction. And so you could imagine a continuum of that, right? So it's, I think, hugely interesting and uh, Friends I worked with over the years and some of the work we did too was just realizing the, the importance of what you're observing, you know. And so you, you're absolutely right with what you and the farmers are, are, are seeing. Um, it makes sense. And then there's, a, there's a, a big amount of research that absolutely supports everything you said. That will be some consolation to all of us farming on poorer soils, you know, we can at least uh, comfort ourselves knowing that we can still have a very high quality production with uh, these concentrated uh, fodders and, and productions. Um, I was going to loop back to, you know, a bit before in the conversation because we, we touched upon it, but I think it's a massively important aspect. We talked about training to avoid a certain food and we mentioned the ability to introduce new types of food. That's the next step after having increased diversity in your landscape. Well, you want your animals to use that diversity. And the method to which you reach that, I think, is, is really interesting. You know, um, let's say, you know, I'm on the farm. I've planted new shrubs, willows or anything else. I know theoretically it's possible or, or I might not even know that it's possible for animals to eat it, but I might just want them to try it. Uh, how do I approach this? You know, there's a variety of ways that, that a person could approach that. <clears throat> if, you have, um, if you have animals that uh, are familiar with eating those, the plants that you put in, <clears throat> or if your neighbor has animals that are familiar, you know, a few, a few animals to, to guide the other animals can be really valuable. And I, I, we, we've gotten involved with people who, who come to appreciate that and think, you know, if I introduce, have a few of these animals that are knowledgeable, they can train my animals really quickly to, to get onto those foods. So that, that's, that's one thought. Another thought, um, there's a lady that worked with our program for many years and went into business then for herself, Livestock for Landscapes. Uh, her name is Kathy Voth. And she, her, one of her goals in, in all of her work was training animals to use foods that they ordinarily wouldn't use. And so she would offer them figure techniques to offer them in feed bunks to animals and uh, just, just to get them familiar. And, you know, you, you think, why wouldn't they use them? Well, why wouldn't they be familiar? And I, I think, you know, on the, on the landscapes that we have, um, there are... are many, many species in our particular case, and maybe some species they just simply have never paid attention to. It's never been a part of, of their radar screen. Um, in the supermarkets where we go here, there can be 600,000 different items available to you. And I was thinking of this lately. 
we have a neighbor down the road that she's in a wheelchair right now. And we asked her if she wants us to do some shopping for her. And when we went into Bozeman recently and she asked us to pick up a couple of items and one uh, were these, these little peas, these snap peas. And I had never paid attention to those. I'd walked by those, I don't know how many times in the store, you know, and we got those for, and I, I thought I'm going to get a bag for us too. Just absolutely loved them. Well, wasn't that I didn't like it. It's just, I never had, never had occurred to me that they were there or to use them. So that's a little bit how I think of Kathy's work of just uh, offering animals in a setting where, where they can become familiar with it. There's a friend that I was corresponding with about a shrub called rabbit brush that animals don't, don't always utilize and cattle. He was working with cattle and he knew of some work that we'd done where we sprayed molasses, just take a little bit of molasses and spray that on the shrubs to attract the animals that are familiar with molasses to attract them, to utilize it. He was sending me pictures. He was so happy how the cattle had just um, taken to eating this rabbit brush like crazy where you ordinarily they, they don't touch it at all. Rabbit brush too is an interesting plant because it regrows really readily after it's, uh, you know, you browse at this time of year in the fall and winter, next spring, it'll grow back like crazy. So it's, it's a great potential forage resource, but his cattle had never used it. So, you know, it's the ideas like that, that a person can use of just ways to try to get the animals to, to try it, try it out and see it's not so bad. But you, you wouldn't want to, you know, take it too far because then you're kind of messing around with their feedback loops. Let's say you're spraying something with a, with a molasses. So you just want to do it once so they, they pay attention to it. But then you, you want to let them still be able to decide if that, is positive in their nutrition or not, right? And, and if it's not, then just drop it. Absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. And that's where, too, a person has to... Um, you, you're raising such, such an important point in that sense. Some of the plants that animals don't, don't use, they're not using because they are potentially toxic to the animal. It's a huge, huge point that, that we want to make here. They're potentially toxic and the animals very well may, may be totally avoiding them because they are so toxic at a particular time or uh, limiting their intake a great deal. Maybe 10 bites is enough of this particular plant species. So it, it's very true what you say that there could be this introduction uh, to the plant and the animal gets to experience and try it out, but then um, letting the animal rely on those feedback systems that uh, that that they are so in tune with, it, it, it amazes me how well they're able to do that. And I, I, I won't talk about all the studies we, we did right now, but I, they're coming to my mind and just thinking it's amazing how much in tune they seem to be with their own bodies and how then I think about how easy it is for we humans to kind of maybe not get, stay in tune with our own bodies. But yeah, a good point that you're raising of how, you know, introduce them to that and so that they're, they're familiar with it and then allow them to, to adjust their, their use of that plant as a function of what their body's able to, to tolerate and need so forth. And another interesting point is um, how much is linked to you know, training and knowledge in the herd and how much is uh, linked to 
genetics, uh, even within a species. For example, you know, uh, I have cows and they're not necessarily uh, eating or utilizing enough the local resources. Is it is it better to invest in like trying to train these cows or should I be reconsidering maybe um, the the breed and going for like a harder uh, breed of cows or, uh, you know, what, what how would you see that? Yeah, that's another excellent, excellent, excellent question. The, the genetics, I think, gets down to how an animal's built and how an animal's body's actually functioning and what that animal uh, is capable of, for, in, for, for instance, um, <clears throat> utilizing. Uh, I mentioned endophyte infected tall fescue earlier and that by all rights, it's a toxic plant. Well, people who work a lot with livestock, cattle, and endophyte-infected talfescue, in fact, do select for animals that have the ability to ingest high amounts of alkaloids. So, so their body, how their body is able to detoxify those alkaloids, handle those alkaloids, and so forth. That, that, so there is that basis in terms of morphology and physiology that enables animals, some animals, um, to, to ingest plants that other ones might not be able to. A goat isn't a sheep, isn't a cow, and that they're different in terms of their, how they're built and how they function. And same within cattle breeds. The other thing to realize is that within a breed, within your, your flock of animals or herd of, of animals, there's going to be great variability amongst individuals in that group to utilize. I'm thinking of, of studies now that were done at the Poisonous Plants Research Lab in Logan, where they had five different breeds of cattle, and they were looking at their ability to, to utilize this toxic plant called Larkspur, um, Delphinium. Probably you have that. It's It grows in many parts of the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful plant. But... That there was more variation within a breed than across breeds in terms of ability to, to ingest this plant. So it's a key point that, that you're raising. There are these differences. You know, the degree to which that starts to happen too in utero and early in life gets us into this whole area of epigenetics and gene expression and what mother is doing and what genes get expressed that end up making each individual different, um, that that all becomes a basis of, of this genetic, epigenetic kind of, of effect. But certainly it's important. And, um, and then realizing, like I say, that within the animals you have, there's going to be variation. And if you don't want to, to try to buy whole other animals, and then again, it's the relationship you have, but, you know, you're trying to, to uh, it gets down to what, what different individuals are doing. And then, then how do you identify which ones are doing that? In those studies, they were able to, to, to monitor. But it was amazing to see how much variation within a breed, uh, all these individuals just totally different in terms of their ability to, to ingest that, that plant. And... Uh, yeah, and then with the endophyte infected tall fescue, what happens is the, the ones that aren't doing very well get selected out of the herd. The ones that do well are, are kept in the herd. And it's, it's easier in a sense because it is such a mono, monoculture kind of system. So your animals are either doing well or they're not doing well. 
it's not a diversity of different thing, different plant species out there. They're really challenged. And uh, yeah, and so the, the producers are selecting for the ones that do the best. It feels like listening to you that, you know, because so many farmers can't operate in such a precise manner as research where you have other tools to measure, the best you can try and do is like increase your chances by like, okay, let's just generally increase diversity. Let's try and make sure that animals can find a diversity of, of, uh, of uh, molecules in the landscape and then let's observe and remove individuals that are doing badly for whichever reason it is without trying to necessarily understand it completely. Because if you don't have this kind of pattern approach to it, there's so many variables that you, you it, it'll be really hard on a, on a farm level to actually understand all of these connections. Absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. You know, <clears throat> encourage diversity, see which animals are performing best and doing the things that you want done in the landscape, performing the best. And then, uh, yeah, and the ones that don't do well. And so then you become a little bit like nature in that sense, right? The, the animals over time that are in a herd of deer or elk or or whatever creatures, sheep or whatever creatures might be, the ones that, that are able to perform well under those conditions, reproduce, have their offspring, and they, they come to, to dominate within, within the, the herd in that particular area. Absolutely. That's, that's how, how it all ends up then. Yeah, because this, this ties to another thing we mentioned, but maybe I didn't push it quite enough around, you know, some caveats or dangers in, uh, in, in, in bringing new elements into the diet and this experimentation, you know, many people maybe would be afraid of like poisoning their animals. Um, you know, is, is there, uh, some advice there on like, you know, maybe going slowly or just maybe trusting your animals to, to select and, and, and to be able to recognize something that might be toxic. That's a good, another I keep saying good questions, but they are good questions. They are very good, very good questions. And uh, you know what? What comes to my mind is that that's where I think having animals that know quote know your range, having animals that are familiar with the landscape, and uh, mothers that know know the landscape and that can train the offspring. That that becomes the real, really the important buffer. And then. Um, you know, and then gradually introducing things when they, when they're familiar with a landscape, uh, adding one new thing or, or a handful of new things to the diet for them to explore, um, that, that becomes relatively simple for the animals. What's overwhelming is when you bring animals from a, a, another totally different environment into a new environment, then they've got to sort everything out. They've got to figure, try to learn it all. And there's that learning curve, and that's when a lot of mistakes can be made. I think of when when my wife and I were living in the backwoods of Colorado, on these huge landscapes that that were had combinations of of forest deciduous and conifer trees, as well as as big expanses of grasslands, and there were animals that cow calf herds that were familiar with those landscapes. And they, they'd been born and raised. They'd had their offspring there, their offspring had their offspring and so forth. And they knew those ranges really well and they performed well, they, they looked great. They, they grew well during the, the spring and summer that they were there. There's also a practice in the United States where people buy what is referred to as stalker cattle. They, they're animals that are perhaps roughly a year of age in that, that ballpark. 
and they buy them in lots and then they move them to landscapes and they 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 put them on those landscapes to <clears throat> hopefully gain weight and then they set, sell them you know it, it's a it's a put and take kind of system when they would put those sta stalkers on those landscapes they didn't perform well they and it's the same landscape the reason they don't know the landscape there's they're stressed you know they were you could see the animals don't know where they are. They don't know what's up. Here's this whole new environment in terms of not only the plants, but there's a lot of predators up there too, from mountain lions and bears to, to wolves and so forth. So, and I used to think, you know, they could make this better by simply taking lead animals, taking mature cows that knew that landscape and put them out there with those, with those stalkers. Those stalkers would, would go to those animals and they, they would help them make that transition. It wasn't being done and we, we weren't a part of what was going on. So I, you know, I didn't have, didn't feel it was my place to, to go talk to people like, you know, like some know-it-all or something, but but it was it was it was clear, you know, these animals are stressed. You could see in their movement, they stick together in one tight little group rather than spread out. And um, and it was lack of familiarity. So it goes back to to the point. If the animals are familiar with an environment, the value of that of mother and these transgenerational linkages really starts to become evident and important in those those cases. And then you know, introducing new, new foods or whatever that, that can all be done quite, quite, quite nicely. Let's, let's take an example. For example, let's say, you know, I have a open pasture and then all of a sudden I'm planting out a silver pasture system and I'm planting black locust. And actually it seems black locust has a bit of a controversy because, you know, you, you read certain sources say, Oh, it's to it's toxic for livestock. And then you read, uh, other sources or farmers, you know, uh, that say, well, actually it's high in protein or whatever, and, and animals really benefit from it. But, you know, let's say I'm a bit cautious because I've heard these, these two stories, I've planted my trees and, and now it's coming to the moment where I could start cutting a few branches off and feeding it to my animals. Um, yeah. What's the approach there? I think exactly like you said, cutting a few branches, don't give them too much, give them just a little bit and allow them to sample it cautiously, you know, to do, to do their sampling of it and then uh, let them become familiar. You know, we did, a, we did a, a bunch of studies with sheep and cattle, not with black locusts, but that relate. And uh, they had to do with, with feeding animals grain and high grain diets. And grain, grain can make animals sick, right? It can, it can get quite sick on, on grain acidosis and become, become incredibly ill. <clears throat> and uh, the studies we were doing with sheep and cattle were, were simply, they were in feedlot and it was during the last two, three months of their life, we were finishing them before we slaughtered them. And we had one set of animals that was on a total mixed ration. So they didn't have any choice. We ground four, four different, four different uh, sources, alfalfa, hay, corn silage, uh, corn, uh, barley, things like that were ground and mixed and put into the ration, or we simply offered animals a choice of the ingredients, allowed them to, to select free choice, all you want, eat, eat away. And 
people said, you know, you're going to make them sick on the grain. They're going to get sick on the grain. And we were, we thought a lot about that too. But what we realized is that if we put them on the other foods, the alfalfa hay, the corn silage, the foods that are safe, and then we very gradually introduce the grain, very gradually introduce the grain to them, they learn how much grain they can eat. And we could offer, we could offer free choice, all those ingredients, and they would simply self-regulate their, their intake. We never got any animals sick. And it, the point, the key point is the point that you're making, introduce it gradually, let them, let them figure. We could have made them very sick. And the way that happens is if animals have eaten a little bit of grain, like a candy bar, right? You, you have a little piece of candy, a little piece of chocolate. It's, it's wonderful, but if you eat the whole box of chocolate, you're going to get sick. And if you don't understand that, the first time you get exposed to the whole box, maybe you eat it and get sick. That's the way that, that we're able to make sheep and cattle get sick. Give them just a little bit, and then someday give them all they want. They can eat, <clears throat> they can eat so much so quickly that they don't realize. If you allow them to, to learn that this stuff can make you sick, by gradually introducing it into the diet, then we, I'm thinking of studies we did with, with sheep right now too, where we had 24 individuals as uniform as you could make them, age, sex, everything else, and we offered them a choice of, of alfalfa pellets or, or barley. And it was amazing to see no animals ever got sick and you'd have everything from animals that wanted hardly any barley at all and mostly alfalfa hay all the way across to ones that ate large amount of barley and not much hay you know and they were all growing doing just fine that gets to i say that because it gets to so many points we're making how they're built and how they function each one's different right and so they they do what what works for their 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 particular body all growing and developing just just fine but um so back to your your point it's to gradually if you have something that could be potentially harmful gradually introducing that into the diet and uh, and allowing them to to figure out each one what's what works for them how much they can eat of that and then goes to another point that you we alluded to and we've as we've mentioned the other the other items that are in their diet are going to influence how much of that black locust uh, they they can actually eat and do do well with goes back to your point that some producers say this is a toxic plant others say oh no my animals do well it's a great source of protein what else is in the diet is is influence their animals themselves, what else is in the diet, all those factors are, are influencing the response of the animals. And so you can take, that's what's amazed me over the years, you can take exactly the same thing. And is it good or not good? Well, it all depends, huh? always all depends on all these things, factors we've been talking about. You know, uh, we're going to take this interview towards an end, but I, I do have one last question if you have uh, the patience. Um, it's about, you know, uh, how do you include this imperative of diversity as you plan the movement of animals through the landscape? Uh, we're moving a bit away from maybe agroforestry here, but I think it is important because anyone managing animals is going to think about paddocks and what to include and, and what to exclude. Um, and, you know, on, on the one hand, you kind of want to do homogenous paddocks uh, because you want to have 
animals eat kind of evenly um, the plants. But on the other hand, you want to have diversity overall. So I guess my question is, what temporal uh, window do you have for uh, diversity? Do animals have to have like diversity every day? Is it okay for them to have, you know, eat diversity within the month, within the weeks? What kind of window do you have to give them diverse uh, plants? You know, I think to the degree that you can enable animals to have diversity within the day, that's a good thing. They can certainly survive fine without diversity in the day. You know, uh, um, there are times when when they're going to have moved more toward monotony, I think, during the winter time here. And... uh, People feed alfalfa hay all winter long on 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 uh, out on on pasture. There's not a lot of diversity that they have. They 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 perform. They're able to do it. So so I think it's uh, you know it's a question of what's feasible, what what's what's possible to do, and animals can certainly make it when when if the quality of the food is good enough, they they can certainly make it during the winter without diversity um, to the degree that a person can uh, include diversity daily, weekly, seasonally. I think it has huge value. I, I, I often think from some of the studies we did back in the days and work we did, I used to think back when we were looking at how experience early in life influences animals' ability to utilize foods. You know, if a little bit's good, a whole bunch is even better. And when we would give them other choices after they'd been on the same food for weeks and weeks, oh, they they couldn't, you could see, they couldn't wait to get to eat something different. You know, they were sick and tired of eating the same old thing. And I think that, you know, if we had to eat the same thing, meal after meal after meal, day after day after day, um, we, we don't like that. We don't like that. And in part, we don't like that because it's hard to have one food that absolutely meets all of our needs, all of our needs nutritionally as well as medicinally. When we get a variety of foods, it, it helps us to do that. So I think that's part of what what's getting manifest in the animals. And then to the degree that we can give them diversity um, in the pasture choices and the ways that we do that, I think it's it's a good thing for for their health and well-being, for their welfare. Um, I think they become less stressed when, the, and I'm thinking this from studies we've done that look at cortisol levels in, in, the, in the animals, uh, I think they're less stressed when when they have choices and an ability to choose. Uh, I probably shouldn't shouldn't digress to this degree right here, but I'll say one other thing for you. You can cut it if you want. But I mentioned Pablo Gregorini earlier and the work he's doing with diversity. And he has one of he and his one of his grad students did a study where they offered use while they were pregnant either a diverse array of different plant species or pretty much uh, a a very limited uh, choice and then they looked at cortisol levels in the hair of the lambs at birth they looked at and cortisol is a is the hormone involved with stress and the 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 ones whose mothers had been on uh on a really pretty much monoculture diet had much higher levels of cortisol in their hair at birth. So that's reflecting that mothers in more of a stressed condition during pregnancy than not, you know, and 
I guess if I was was asked ahead of time, would would you see a difference, Pablo? I'd say I don't know that you would, but here, you know, here he's showing big differences in terms of cortisol stress levels during pregnancy as a function of having diverse foods versus versus no food. So can they make it on on monoculture? Certainly they can. Wild wild animals do it and domestic too. Do they like it? Probably not if they can have diverse some diversity, probably and good I, for them. I think that's a that's a really nice conclusion to this interview. And um, I really want to thank you for such a stimulating conversation and uh, a lot of things to think about. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed it as much. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Fred. And thank you so much. I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed the chance to visit with you and to, and to get into some topics that, that many times on the many podcasts I do, we, we don't have a chance to talk. People aren't so wanting to talk about that. It's been wonderful, wonderful for me to have a chance to do that with you. Thank you very much for listening. As usual, all the links are in the description. I really encourage you to go and check out some other talks and videos from Fred where he explains his work from another perspective and in more detail. Please feel free to reach out for any questions or suggestions. And if you could support the podcast, that would be amazing and help us make this sustainable in the long run.